Good morning. Welcome to Men's Roundtable. Glad you're here. Guys, we continue in the series, Joshua, into the promised land, but in the mini-series of work. Phase two today. Phase two, work. Guys, just going over a couple of uh, things. We've been back at Ceasefire for a while. Just for those of you that may be new, my name is Joe Barlow. There is a sign-up sheet when you come in the door. If you would, please put your name on there. Check. Uh, Forrest keeps up with it for us. Um, once you've signed up, you, your name should be there. If you hadn't been here a while, put your name back on the list. He's got it in the, in the database somewhere. It just needs to be pulled back up. That gives Ceasefire an idea who's coming and going from their building. And also gives Phil an opportunity to be able to reach out to you in the event something changes, keep up with the email, uh, mailing list, and things like that. Parking over here on this side, easy to do. Uh, don't park so much on the other side of the building because there are customers over there that come in before 8 o'clock. Um, if you would, when we when we finish this meet this morning, if you would, just make your way on back out of the building. Uh, don't linger too long in here in the lobby area. They, they would like to, for us to exit the building. That being said, let me uh, touch on Taria Stout. Uh, Jeff Stout and his wife, Taria, are in Baltimore. I uh, talked to Jeff yesterday. got a text message from him this morning. Um, she, uh, Jeff Stout works with Jeff Cook, helping him uh, with our video and audio stuff every week. Taria was diagnosed, actually found uh, quite remarkably a brain tumor. Uh, when she changed ear, nose, and throat doctors a couple of months ago. Uh, had surgery uh, two weeks ago, uh, about almost two weeks ago. Uh, she finished her steroid treatment yesterday and seemed to be doing well. I could hear her in the background, and she's got a little issues with some dizziness, uh, tingling in her hands, just some just some things that'll that'll cure out after time. But her steroid treatment finished yesterday, and about four o'clock this morning, she woke up in excruciating pain, and is still in that pain. And they've got to call in for the doctors to see if they can't find out what's going on there. If there's something that uh, that they can do, she's had her, her pain has been pretty manageable. But uh, you know, when you when you cut a hole in your scalp and go through your front of your head removing part of your brain i can only imagine i don't really want to imagine what that's like but if you would keep uh, keep jeff and taria in your prayers i thank you for that uh, weekend after this in about 10 days work day at ebenezer this is an attempt to make a little early push to get ebenezer and some things done there getting ready for the fall uh it's going to be over three weekends if i'm not mistaken isn't it yeah. three weekends end of june end of july end of august yeah so that's 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 an opportunity if you've been to deer camp you're an alumni and you want to give back or if uh if you just got some free time uh there's some information there it has been sent out in an email check on it uh contact information and maybe coordinating what what's going on up there also passionate partnering coming up next weekend friday and saturday at uh Fairhope. So uh, if you're interested in that, that information is on the webpage. Please sign up there. Guys, let me open for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I thank you for Ceasefire. I thank you for my brother Jeff and Chris and Phil uh, preparing each week, bringing us to you and uh, making our uh, handouts and uh, providing information for us. Lord, I ask that you watch over Taria, be with Jeff. Be with the surgeons, be with the doctor and the medical staff. Give her comfort, Lord. Bring her peace. Bring Jeff patience. 
allow him to be a comforter for her. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Omaha! Oh. Omaha! Omaha! How about them volunteers? <laughs> oh, yeah. The Bulldogs as well. And uh, Ole Miss, what, what happened there? I'll be real nice about it. <laughs> oh, oh. We're just, we're just having fun. We're just having fun. So, gentlemen, I have a song for you this morning. Um, dedicated to all those uh, who have fathers, since this is Father's Day weekend, that taught us a good work ethic. Um, 40 hour work week. May you hear the voice of God as that great gospel group, Alabama, offers us music and may it open your heart to what God has for us this morning. There are people in this country who work hard every day, not for fame or fortune do they strive, but the fruits of their labor are worth more than their pay, and it's time a few of them were recognized. Hello, Detroit Auto Worker, let me thank you for your time. Just to send it on down the line. Hello, Pittsburgh, steel mill worker. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. This is for the one who swings the hammer. Driving home the nail. For the one behind the counter. Ringing up the sales. and the fields in the city streets and the quiet country towns working together like spokes inside a wheel they keep this country turning around hello kansas sweet bill farmer let me thank you for your time you work a 40 hour week for a living just to send it on down the line Hello, Miss Virginia Coal Miner Let me thank you for your time You work a 40-hour week for a living Just to send it on down the line This is for the one who drives the big rig Up and down the road For the one out in the warehouse Bringing in the load the policeman on patrol For everyone who works behind the scenes With a spirit you can't replace With no machine Hello, America Let me 
thank you for your time. I have to tell this story um, as we get started. My good friend Charles uh, came down this weekend to uh, Fairhope. And uh, we had kind of a guys gathering and, and uh, Saturday night, uh, Charles and I go out to Bill E's. And if you're ever in Fairhope, you need to eat at Bill E's. William Stitt, who is from Yazoo City, uh, owns Bill E's and he's famous for making uh, Bill E's bacon and getting national recognition for his bacon. And so Charles and I are there and we walk in and um, as all of you guys and anybody who's in the restaurant business knows, it is a challenge. Making food is the easy part. It's the service part that's difficult. So we walk in and it looks like junior high uh, camp uh, in the restaurant because all the little waitresses and waiters look like they're in junior high to me. Uh, now, the little gal, she claimed that she was in high school, but I, I'm, I'm still not sure. And so she did a great job, great job. She hadn't been working very long. That, that was pretty clear, but she did a great job. And then Charles, as long as I've known Charles, which is for over uh, 25 years, Charles can't eat anything without Tabasco. And so uh, when she brings us our food, Charles looks at the little girl and he says, um, could I get some Tabasco? And she looks at him and she says, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, sweetheart, you're doing a great job. Uh, just ignore him. He doesn't need it. <laughs> so she didn't know what Tabasco was. So it was pretty funny. Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. This morning, um, we continue. Joshua, take the land, be the man. Follow with me as we read our introductory paragraph. The book of Joshua is the book of conquest. The battlefield is Canaan, and it is where God keeps his promise that he made with Abraham. In this study, we will use the land possessed by Joshua and the people of Israel as a metaphor to understand how we take possession of what it means to be a Christian. We will examine 10 issues that men face every day. Each day is a battle to be faced with courage, strength, and faith. You must be courageous, will you? The topic that we're on uh, in our 10 is work. How should I think about work? A work ethic. Man, does the next generation have a sense of work? It scares us, doesn't it? Those of us who are a little longer in the tooth. Uh, is our children, our grandchildren, going to know how to work? Um, what is our view of work as Christian men? Let's go to work. Pick up your pen. We always start out with journaling. Uh, if you're not writing, you're not growing. 
you got to put pen to paper. I have three questions for you. Question number one, and this is all relative to work, developing a theology of work. What has my whole life prepared me for? And again, this idea of, of work, I would even suggest to you, <clears throat> once again, is what has God been doing in your life, all of your life, to prepare you to do what you do. And I would, I would say things like uh, would be on your list, learn skills. What skills do I have? And it, and, it, and, it, and it may be that you're just a people person. You don't know how to do much of anything, but you're a connector. My good friend, Mark, uh, I keep telling Mark, Mark, you're a connector. He is such a people person. And he has a sale, a sales job. Wonder how that happened. You know, he's a connector. Um, what are your work life experiences? God uses that. What have you been exposed to? Character. God develops our character through the things that we suffer, the endurance that we learn from the suffering. And from endurance comes character. That is the template that Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 gives us. Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. And from character, we have hope. If you're in a hopeless situation, then I would say that you're suffering from character deprivation. Because the Bible says that as we increase in character, it increases our hope. And then finally, even in this preparation, part of your preparation is self-awareness. As I've said to you before, the greatest uh, issue in men's life, apart from forgetfulness, I mean, certainly forgetfulness is um, the biggest tool in the enemy's hands. Um, but apart from that is a lack of self-awareness that most men have. We, uh, as a people group, tend not to be self-aware. That doesn't just happen because you're blowing out birthday candles. Self-awareness is a deliberate and intentional journey to become that. So that's all preparation. Second question. Second question gets into your passion. Why do I desire this? Whatever this is, and my hope is, is that you're living out a life, a, a job, your work, that is your passion. The idea of passion is the idea of what, what motivates you? What is your motivation? What, what dreams do you have? What energizes you? I mean, I, I, I feel so blessed. I love what I do. Does it seem like I love what I do? It's like I love it. 
And I get physically tired, but I don't get tired of doing what I do. I am so blessed. And yet there's been times in my job and in my work, I've been miserable, depressed, wanted to leave, wanted to jump off the Tallahatchie Bridge, all of that. But sometimes you're in a season where you just need to keep chopping wood to get to that better place. The last part of your passion that I would suggest uh, is considering what your core values are. What are your core values and beliefs? Now, these are all pieces that I often work through with a client in my office. It's having career issues, job issues. Um, those of you who might have sons or grandsons who are seniors in high school, I would, I would, I would work through what I'm giving you this morning uh, with them. Passion. And then the third, the third question there gets us into calling. Where is God sending me? It's a calling. Everybody has a calling. What's your life purpose? What is your life purpose? Have you ever written that down? A life purpose statement? You know, hopefully it's more than just get up and get up and get up and get up and keep moving and go to bed and do it again tomorrow. It's not much of a life purpose. You sound like a pony at the fair. You're moving, but you're just going around creating mud, moving around in a circle. People's needs that you're drawn to serve. People in needs that you're drawn to serve. I and mean, we're all called to serve. We're all in the service industry. The fourth piece might be the message of your life. What is your eulogy? What, do you, what would you want to be written on your tombstone? What do, you, what do you want them, you know, the two friends that you have when they show up at your funeral? What would you want them to say about you? Write that out. And then finally, how experiences of suffering and sacrifice have been integrated into your life purpose? How has the experiences of suffering and sacrifice that you've been through integrate with your life purpose. If I was interviewing you to work for me, I would be asking you about ways that you have suffered and had to sacrifice to get where you are. That would tell me a lot about you right there. You know, and then if you were telling me about hard times, I would be very curious how, how you would classify a hard time. You know, my baseball team got beat this week. Oh, bless your heart. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, if, you're, if we're not making fun of you, then we don't love you. All right? Exactly. Can't let it go. Yeah. I mean, really? Suffering? You know? How do you classify suffering? 
And if you're going to work for me, if you're going to be on my team, I want you to show me that you've endured something. That you've really kept going when you wanted to quit. I mean, there's nobody in this room that's not wanted to quit at some point, right? We've all wanted to do that. I, I cannot do this series in, in, in this section on work without telling the story. I've told it before here, but man, it changed my life. Swimming lessons must have been, I don't know, eight years old. Mama dropped me off at the city pool. Aunt came and got me. Swimming lessons. I, I would assume that the swimming pool, the city pool in Elizabeth in Tennessee, opened at probably 10 a.m., 11 a.m. And they had swimming lessons uh, before the, uh, the pool started. I remember the water was really, really cold. I mean, it's June, July, summertime. And um, I'm taking swimming lessons, learning how to swim. And it came that day that uh, probably a high school kid was teaching the class and we had to swim across the pool underwater. So, you know, I was learning to dog paddle, put my head in the water and I'm kicking and I'm kicking and I'm kicking, I'm kicking, I'm kicking, I'm kicking. <gasps> and I come up and there's this skinny high school kid said, dude, you almost had it. You could have touched the wall. And he's yelling at me because I'm about three feet from the wall. And I thought I was going to die. And he's yelling at me. Dad, I still remember that shame of feeling the fir for the first time in my conscious memory like a failure and a quitter. And I'll tell you, something happened inside of me. And it's like, I don't want to ever feel that again. I don't want to ever feel that again. And it changed my life. Now, again, I've failed and, qu and quit many times. But there was a vow that I made that day, that won't happen again. So, I, you know, I went back, or I, I didn't go back. I just turned around and, and swam back the other way and doggone it. He wasn't yelling at me that time. That's what, that's what work is about, is, is developing a work ethic that we don't quit. That's a lot about what work is, isn't it? Don't quit. Don't quit. Be faithful. Scripture says to him who is given much is expected much. He who is faithful in the little things will be given more. Be faithful. Work hard. We'll dig into it um, deeper. Let's look at Joshua. Joshua. Joshua chapter 11 and chapter 12. This section ends the battle. The fighting is over as we get through chapter 12. What's amazing about this whole study in Joshua, once again, is it, it gives us such a template of what it means to walk with God. And, it, and as we've said consistently, Joshua is our model as God intends us to move toward manhood, to be a man. Isn't it interesting that when God teaches us, 
all, all through the Old Testament, he gives us stories. Old Testament stories, stories capture our heart. He gives us three-dimensional stories to teach us a principle to fight, to fight, to fight. He tells us about real stories of war and battle and just normal men who fail and who are courageous in battle. He gives us a story in order to help us understand in this day and time what it means to walk with Jesus and face each day as if we're at war, because we is. We is. We is at war. Every man in here is facing battles. And this passage today gives us an incredible template of how to face the battles. Pick up with me as we read uh, Joshua chapter 11. And the focus of the battle moves from the south up to the north. Up to this point, uh, Joshua has been um, uh, moving into the land of Canaan, the promised land in the south. Jericho, Ai, the other kings in the south. And now he moves up north and it's more severe. It's like going north to play Notre Dame back in the day. Not so much now, but there was a time. So it's like the kings in the north are more severe. Now flip over to chapter 12, and I'll kind of give you the end first. The very last verse, very last part of chapter 12 says this, a total of 31 kings is what Joshua and the Israelites were facing. The most severe opponent that they'd ever faced. The battles in the South were uh, critical battles, obviously. What was uh, getting ready to happen in the North was a much more severe opponent. They were getting ready to face the hardest part of the battle. Chapter 11 begins with the list of all the kings. Pick up with me at verse 4, and we'll skip over all those uh, mosquito bites. Verse 4, they came out in full force, all their troops massed together, a huge army in number like sand on an ocean beach, to say nothing of all the horses and chariots. When I read that passage, I, I see the scene in Braveheart, you know, where all the little peasants are standing out there and all the British are lined up on the hill. And the little guy says, there's so many. There's so many. That's what was happening. But what's interesting is that phrase, the horses and the chariots. Now, at that day and time, if you had horses and chariots, you had tanks and planes. You had tanks and planes. I mean, these guys were equipped like nobody else. And that's why that's included in there. It's like these guys were not only like sands of the sea in terms of number, but they had the best equipment. All these kings met and set up camp together at the waters of Maron, ready to fight against Israel. And then verse 6, you need to underline it, get your little pink highlighter out, highlight it. Verse 6, and God said to Joshua, 
God spoke to Joshua. When was the last time God spoke to you? If he did speak, would you even hear him? Are you listening? Learning to listen is what it means to walk with God, not a bunch of doing. If you get out ahead of yourself, out ahead of your skis, and you're more about doing than you are about listening, you're going to fall flat on your face. So God spoke to Joshua, don't worry about them. This time tomorrow, I'll hand them over to Israel, all dead. You'll hamstring their horses. You'll set fire to their chariots. Yeehaw, let's go. Let's go. Saddle up. God's told us. We win. Joshua, his entire army with him, took them by surprise, falling on them at the waters of Meron. God gave them to Israel. God gave. God gave. Part of the deal that Jericho, uh, that uh, Joshua has been learning through this whole process is the battle is God's. Joshua is just being included. God's fighting the battle. Joshua is just included. It's not about you, Joshua, any more than it's about you and me on every day. Get up every day. It's about God. Are you more theocentric or anthropocentric? How about that? I learned that in seminary. Theocentric is God-centered. Anthropocentric is man-centered. I want to get up every day and be God-centered. It's about God. It's about God. God gave them to Israel, who struck and chased them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mishpharath, Mayim, and then to the valley of Misphah on the east. No survivors. Joshua treated them following God's instructions. He hamstrung their horses. He burned up their chariots. Now, I want to pause right here, and I want to show you just a brief video that explains this idea of destruction. Uh, I love the uh, Bible Project. I've exposed uh, this to you before. You need to use that as a great resource. Keep going. Anytime you're studying a scripture, pull up BibleProject.com, see what they're saying about it. Great resource. I want to show you this. It kind of gives a little bit of a of a summary of, of these first 12 chapters of Joshua and even explains this idea of what the armies uh, of Joshua were doing relative to the people in terms of this destruction. Watch this. Now, the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. 
This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Mm. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After Amen. Clear Bible study. Use it as a resource. We continue. Then Joshua came back and took Azar, killing its king. Early on, Azar had been uh, head of all these kingdoms. They killed every person there. Again, the hyperbole that's being talked about. Carry out the holy curse. Not a breath of life left anywhere. Then he burned down Hazar. Joshua captured and massacred all the royal towns with their kings. The holy curse commanded by Moses, the servant of God. But Israel didn't burn the cities that were built on mounds except for Hazar. Joshua did burn down Hazar. The people of Israel plundered all the loot, including the cattle from these towns for themselves, but they killed the people, total destruction. They left nothing human that breathed. Just as God commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He didn't leave incomplete one thing that God 
had commanded Moses. Joshua experienced the success because he obeyed God. That's the key point. Obey God. Jump down to verse 21. Joshua came out at the time also to root out the Anakine from the hills, from Hebron, from Debor, from Anab, from the mountains of Judah, from the mountains of Israel. Joshua carried out the holy curse on them and their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the people of Israel except in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. There they were few left there. Joshua took the whole region. He did everything that God had told Moses. Then he parceled it out as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribes, and Israel had rest for more. The Anakim that were left, interestingly enough, show up later as the Philistines, and they were known as the giants in the land, and the Philistines were the ones that David um, confronted with their leader named Goliath. And so it's just a little uh, history there in terms of what showed up later on. Guys, the template from today's passage is the template that God would offer us for every day of our lives. It's simply this. Remember that the battle is God's. As I get up in the morning, as you get up in in the morning, we need to keep remembering. Remember, remember, remember that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. God is faithful. Don't start the day without remembering whose you are, um, who you belong to, and who has his hand on your life. And then this idea, once again, of do not fear. I sit in my counseling office regularly listening to men and women and couples in fear. If you really want to grow, start deciding what you're afraid of and confront your fear. And what God is saying consistently all through these battles, Joshua, don't fear. I've got this, but you've got to trust me. You're going to win because of your obedience and your faith in me, not because of your power or not because of your horses and chariots. Horses and chariots, no match for God. And then finally, the, the, the template that we all need to follow is just to trust his promises. God is faithful. So what if we started, what if we lived every day just like that? Remember who I am. Don't be intimidated by fear. Don't panic and keep trusting in the promises of God. That's it. It's like golf. It's simple. A stick, a ball in a hole. I mean, how hard could it be? Right? Stick a ball in a hole. Well, it can be complicated, but it's still the fundamentals. Remember, don't fear, trust God, trust God. So, with that template in mind with Joshua, then what does manhood look like relative to our work? What what does work really mean? as a follower of God. I want to show you this clip, motivational clip. Work hard, work hard, keep chopping wood. Watch this. 
Tell me one thing in your life that is great that came as a result of being comfortable. Because everywhere I look and everywhere I see in today's society, everybody's doing everything they can to be more comfortable. They're looking for the more convenience. They're looking for the quicker. They're looking for the faster. And see, there's opportunity in that for those of you that want to get better. Because I'm going to tell you right now, all the reasons that these successful people that you look up to, that you aspire to be like, are the way they are, have all come from a place of being uncomfortable. Understand that when you're trying to avoid the pain, when you're trying to avoid the struggle, when you're trying to avoid the hard things, you are actively choosing to be average. You are actively choosing to be mediocre. And you are actively choosing to move further away from what you want in life. Because that hardship and that pain and that struggle, they give you the skills that will forge you into a motherfucking champion. We do not retreat. We do not give up. We do not surrender. And the reason why most of you are not successful is because every single time stuff not going your way, you give up, you quit, you let go. And people feel weakness. They feel it. You can feel when somebody's not committed, when they're not all in, when they're not dedicated. And there's another level you get to when you go all in. Look at your belief system every single day and stick with it. Don't rush the process. Trust the process. Don't rush the process. Trust the process. Process. Don't rush the process. Trust the process. People who do stuff consistently and on time, they surpass people who talented and gifted. You guys have got to believe in yourself. Headstrong, mentally tough. That's the only way to the bullshit here in life. Winners, the difference between them and the spectators is the winners have a belief that overrides the crowd's disbelief every single time. Their belief is so strong, even though they hit failure, they get knocked on the ass. They're finally intestinal fortitude to stand back up again, face that same challenge, learning from the previous mistakes, and make it happen. Winners fail a million times. What makes them a winner is that they believe it, they're headstrong. Nothing's gonna stop them. There is no excuse for not being the hardest worker. Yeah, some might be bigger, stronger, faster, quicker, younger, whatever else, but there is no excuse to not be the hardest f***ing worker there. No longer are we going to accept rhymes and society's rhyme the reason that we are average. Average is a weak mentality. We must believe it so much so that we're arrogant about it. We must be stuck for excellence. The easy route never pays well. The only route in life that pays well is the hard route. When you're working out and you want to die, feel the death happening in you. Feel the pain happening in your legs as you rep out one more squat. Cause it'll be all the more pleasurable when you reach the inevitable other end of the spectrum where you're laying in your hammock, sipping on a protein shake. Boy, I really went hard. I really went hard on that set. I really went hard in school. I really went hard in my career. I really went hard in life. Go hard die hard. Guys, I believe that our theology of work, how we see work under God's umbrella, is a critical core value that we need to have. There on your handout, 
is the 12 principles, a, a list of 12. Now, I realized that I sent Chris my unfinished work. Somehow I saved it and then sent him what I was working on. So it's six and six. It should be one through 12. Um, but they're on your handout. Theology of work. 12 principles. I don't have time to go through all of them uh, in detail. But I would invite you to sit down with your journal and just put these in your own words as if God were sitting in front of you and he was saying this statement, each one of these statements to you relative to your work. So the first one, you were created to do real work. You were created to work. Number two, work is a calling. Work is a calling. It's a gift. Number three, every vocation has dignity. We're all needed. Number four, every vocation is sacred to the Lord. Get out of this split of godly work and secular work. No such thing. No such thing. Every vocation is sacred to the Lord. Number five, work is hard. It was intended to be. Work is hard. Number six, work is ministry. It's not like I work and then I, and then I have my ministry. Work is ministry. There are people that you sit with every day that if you weren't doing that job, you would never have contact with them. It's a mission field. It's, a, it's an opportunity. Number seven, every interaction is an opportunity. Who's God going to put you in place with today? What if, what if the closest that that person will ever be to Jesus is you? Ugh, ouch. Number eight, there is always a higher purpose. God's got something bigger in mind. It's not just doing your job. No, it's a higher purpose. Number nine, do your work well as to the Lord. Who's watching you? You have an audience of one. That's all I care about. May I be found faithful at the end of the day. Number 10, it is good to enjoy work. It's satisfying. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Number 11, we need to take work seriously. Seriously. I, I truly believe in the parable of the, um, of the master who gives the servants five talents, two talents, and one talent. And I believe whatever you're doing, you are in, um, um, invited to take your five and make ten, or to take your two and make four, or to take your one and bury it? Really? Uh-uh. Are you? Is that what you're doing? You're just taking your one and burying it? No. I'd get on my hands and knees and I would ask God, God, forgive me for just hanging, trying to hang on. I don't care if you're 98 years old. 
you need to be taking your two and making it four, taking your five and making it 10. Retirement doesn't mean you quit working. Retirement just means you shift focus. You're still invited to take what God has given you and make it more. And number 12, work is a place to make plans and build for the future, but in prayerful submission to God's will. God, I, I desire your kingdom be built, not mine. And what, what an opportunity. And again, to, to those of you uh, that are listening to this, and you're in a miserable job, and you hate your job, well, maybe you're a wilderness Christian, and you've never gotten out of the wilderness, and you're just stuck. And God does take us through the wilderness. I wouldn't deny that your job sucks. Yeah, that's a sucky job. But maybe God is, first of all, building your character. There's no doubt He's doing that. And maybe He's inviting you to not be afraid to do something different. And that is the beauty of living in this country in a way that other people all over the world have no opportunity. So I don't know what God's doing because you've got a sucky job, but I guarantee He's involved. Are you listening? Are you listening? I hope you'll work through these 12. I think it's worth spending some time over. And thank God. Thank God that it's all about Him and not about you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, so much for the gift of this morning. Thank you for my brothers. And um, thank you for your word and opening it up and feeding us this morning. Father, may we chew on this, um, swallow it, chew it up again, swallow it again, and uh, may it change our lives in, in a way that we really are light to the world. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.